I was a freshman in college. I had been a believer for about three months. God had radically changed my life uh, just after graduating high school. And so I'd gone from this person who was depressed and suicidal to now feeling full of life and hope. I'd gone from this person that was so full of anxiety every night when I laid my head on my pillow to now this person who laid down and felt peace. I'd been addicted to all kinds of stuff. And so many of those things, when I came to know the Lord, just broke off instantly. Um, I was well on my path to alcoholism, even at that young age. And now I stand 17 years later, and I've never been drunk in those 17 years as to where I, it consumed me for those age 12 to age 19. Um, and so God had just radically transformed my life. My heart was on fire. I wanted to tell everyone and share with everyone about this Jesus and what he had done for me. Well, at the same time, when I was walking through all that suicidal stuff and just difficult times, I had a very close friend that was a real listening ear in high school, and her name was Melissa. Well, uh, I ended up dropping out of school uh, and then went back, so she was actually now a year ahead of me, but she had gone off to university. Well, as I was starting at my university, I'd been there for about two months, and she had now been for a year and two months at her university. And uh, we hadn't called up in a long time, and uh, I made a phone call, and I started talking to her. And I started telling her about all the things that God had done and how I was just so enamored with who Jesus was. And she was somewhat of a nominal Christian in high school, and then she began to then explain back to me how uh, she's now taking a New Testament class at this secular university. She doesn't believe in Jesus anymore. She doesn't believe in God anymore. She certainly doesn't believe in the Bible anymore. So here's this person that I care about, and here's this God whom I now love. And needless to say, there was some tension in the conversation. What do you say? What do you do? And so as lovingly as I knew how, I tried to share with her about what I had come to know as truth. And she was not happy to hear it. And she ends up saying, this is the furthest I've ever felt away from God in my entire life and made it very clear that she didn't want to speak to me anytime soon. And so I apologize not for necessarily what I said, but for any way that it offended her. And uh, we left it at that. Well, some time passed and there was a little bit of conversation back and forth. Uh, but then came spring break. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead in my, in my story. So when, I, when we got off the phone, then I'm left with, well, what do I do? What do I do? And so I began to pray for her. Uh, I'm tempted to say daily, but at least multiple times a week. And um, I began to play, pray Revelation 3.20. I know that's now a verse to the church, but the concept certainly applies to unbelievers as well, that Jesus is standing at the door knocking and that each person has to make a response and open that door. And I'd heard some evangelists come through and talk about that. And so I said, man... That's what I'm going to pray. And as I found myself praying for her, I was praying, God, pound at her heart until she lets you in. Lord, I pray from the moment she wakes up till the moment she goes to bed that you would pound at her heart. And I don't know why this is my prayer. I never heard anyone praying, but Revelation 3.20 was there, and so that's what I began praying for. Now fast forward to spring break. We're back in our hometown and her sister had had a baby. And so I wanted, I was close with her, I was close with the family, I wanted to go meet the baby. 
And so I went over, 19-year-old guy, we don't have a whole lot of, uh, I didn't have any younger siblings, didn't have a whole lot of baby experience. I remember I was like, oh, what a precious baby, oh, that's so cute. They handed me the baby, I held the baby for about two seconds, and he spit up all over my shoulder, and it's like, well, isn't that wonderful, you know, and you pass it right back. Well, uh, we're all sitting there in the room together, and, you know, things are cordial and good, and um, then comes time for the baby to feed and take a nap. If the family leaves the room, and it's just Melissa and myself there. So we start talking, and then with a little bit of hesitation, my heart cares for her, so I got to know, you know. And I said, um, Melissa, where, you know, where are you with the, with the whole God stuff? And she said, um, I don't believe it. I still, I, I don't believe any of it. Um, but I wish I did. And I said, yeah, why is that? And she said, because Tyler, do you know that from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed, I cannot stop thinking about him. And almost verbatim, I'm hearing my words come from the mouth of the person I prayed for. I don't know what my face did in the moment. I have a pretty expressive face. I'm sure I wasn't playing it cool. Eyes were probably big. I don't know. And I said, Melissa, you're never going to believe this, but let me, let me tell you what I pray for you. And she says, well, I guess that report makes you really excited then, huh? And I said, yeah, it does. Nothing else major happened that day. I left, but I left with a sense of fear, reverence before the Lord. Of I'm riding in my car in Mooresville, North Carolina, this little place that no one practically knows about. And yet the God of the universe hears my voice and answers my prayer. Man, it laid a foundation in me. It stirred something in me. And so I began to explore what the New Testament says about prayer. One more highlight before we get to that. Although there was not a, another uh, climactic point that day, about five years later, she was married, had her first kid, um, she actually came to know the Lord and was baptized at a church in our hometown with her husband. And uh, last time that I've checked on them, they're still doing well, walking with the Lord and involved in a, in a vibrant church there. So super exciting. But as I explored and I found these numerous exhortations and teachings on prayer, I felt like the disciples in Luke 11. Lord, I want to know how to pray. Teach me to pray. And so one of the passages that he brought me to was actually the passage that we're going to look at today. And uh, you're probably all there. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to go 1 through 7. But I'm going to linger on verse 1 for a little while. And just let it sink in. But I'm going to read it all here at the beginning. And then I'm going to pray for us and we'll jump in. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 says this. It says, first of all then. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, 
And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray. God, you hear us. Jesus, you said, ask and you will receive. So God, I pray you meet with us this morning. And God, more than anything, I pray we would be gripped with your heart. We'd be gripped with the gospel. And that more and more and more we would become people of prayer. Lord, may your word have its intended effect upon us. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So, here's what we're looking at. Big picture today. God's call to prayer for all people. God's heart for all people. And then God's provision for all people in Jesus. And so, verses 1 through 3. God's call to prayer for all people. Verse 1 says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, we're going to go back and forth a little bit talking about our personal prayer lives, but mainly in focus here is the life of the corporate body, the church, us. I say that because if you can hold your place, just flip over to chapter 3. Paul's going to give Timothy the reason that he's writing in verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to, to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so that's where I get that from. He's talking about the corporate prayer life. And you probably heard that phrase that he put out there. He says, first of all. Now, this, this isn't like, hey, I've got three things to say, and this one's first. The, the readers would have realized this as their ears would have perked up of, of something of importance. Hey, primarily, first of all, I've got something to say. I urge you, I exhort you, I encourage you, I beg you, I plead with you, right? We've seen this, this phrase, I urge you, a lot in the letters of Paul. And then he says that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. And we can nuance that a little bit if we want, that petitions are for us. Intercession is for others. Prayer is more of a general term. And of course, there's supposed to be thanksgiving in it all. But the point is clear. Hey, prayer is to be of primary importance among you. So the question then comes to me is, why does Paul place such a high importance upon prayer? I want to do a little bit of biblical survey to help us get an answer of that question. But I think three big reasons stand out to me as I consider the Scriptures as a whole. One, a praying church is a powerful church. Two, a praying church is a unified church. And three, a praying church is a focused church that is focused on God's purposes, focused on God's mission. But Paul is not the only one that saw prayer of a primary importance. Jesus had much to say about prayer. And in Matthew, Mark, as well as Luke, 
we remember that Jesus, maybe one of his most famous teachings and verses on prayer was he was actually quoting from Isaiah 56, verse 7. And Jesus says this, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Think about the magnitude of that statement. He's saying, hey, this this church that I'm building, these people of God, one of the primary things of their identity is that they're going to be a people of prayer. It's going to be in their DNA. It's going to be who they are because they're humbly submitted to God and His purposes. And they need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, these people are going to be a people of prayer. I find myself challenged by this. Imagine maybe if someone moved here from India and they grew up in a rural community of strict Hinduism. They've never been exposed to Jesus, the Bible, or the church, and they move next to you. They find out you're a believer and they say, Tell me about church. What do you do? What's it about? Where's prayer on the list? You see what I'm saying? Does it make the list? I mean, we, could, we sing together. We hear preaching. I don't know. Where, where is it on the list? I want us to get even more convinced of this biblically. Keep your spot in 1 Timothy 2. But I want to take a look at the book of Acts right quick. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. We have a case study in Acts. Think about this. Acts is such a beautiful book. It's the only narrative we have of the church, right? The Gospels are narratives. They're of Jesus' earthly ministry. The letters are addressing specific concerns. But the only narrative that we have in Scripture about the kind of way the church functioned is the book of Acts. And as we know, Jesus at this point has been crucified, resurrected. He has spent days on earth with the apostles, teaching them about the kingdom. And now the ascension is coming, and he tells them what? Go to Jerusalem and wait, right? Verse 8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. It says, All these with one accord, there's the unified, right? Unity were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and His brothers and sisters. It says that the early church was devoting themselves to prayer. We're going to see that phrase over and over and over again. And what's the result? As they devote themselves to prayer and as they wait, the Spirit comes upon them in power. See, in the church life, we always see this model. If you can imagine a saucer, that's the world around us. A teacup, you're the teacup, and God is the teapot. When we come to Him in prayer, He fills us up, and it overflows into ministry. There's fulfillment. There's, there's a fullness in us before there's a fulfillment in the earth. And we're going to see this pattern over and over. To say it another way, they're empowered. And when they pray together, they're unified. Rick's not here today, so I can pick on him, right? I love Rick. I didn't know him super well. But just a couple weeks ago, we started praying before the service back here. 
And man, it's, there's something that happens when you pray with people. All of a sudden, you're like, man, our little baby boy on the way doesn't have a name yet. We might name him Rick. I don't know. There's just a unity that happens. Like you just, it's hard to come out of a prayer meeting swinging at people. You just want to hug people you don't know. Hey, brother, come here, man. Like it really does. It has this unifying effect. And we're going to see that here. But it has this empowering effect. And it also keeps them focused on the mission. Now what happens? The Spirit gets poured out in Acts chapter 2. So they're good, right? They're filled up. We don't need to pray anymore. Wrong. Acts 2.42. Let's look at it. There's going to be several things listed here. But it says, And they devoted themselves, once again that word devotion, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to prayer. This is the early church. Look at the result. Verse 47 of chapter 2. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. David alluded to it in the announcements. Man, that's what we're seeing with these kids coming to know the Lord. Right? I want to see more. I want to see more. Can you, can, you, can you imagine? I mean, how many people were in the upper room? 120? They had no idea that this was going to be something that gets dropped on them that changes the entire world. Do we believe that Irmo High School and that our community can be truly changed for the glory of God, that people could taste and see that He is good? It's birthed in prayer. And so after this time of prayer, once again, they're filled up. So Peter and John go out of the temple, chapter 3, verse 1, at the hour of prayer. We know the story. Some of us know the story. They see a lame man. The lame man says, can I have some money? He says, I don't have any money. What I have, I give you. Get up in the name of Jesus Christ. The man walks. People come around, and this also is the pattern throughout the, the, the narrative of Acts. They preach the gospel. They preach the kingdom. A lot of people get saved, and some people beat them up. <laughs> Happens over and over and over. But as that happens... Look at, just look at chapter 4, verse 24. It says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together with God. In other words, they prayed. Go to chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. There we see it, right? Praying together, unified. God does something so unmistakably clear that the room that they were in was shaken. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and it overflows into speaking the Word of God with boldness. This is the pattern that we continue to see throughout the book of Acts. This devotion to prayer, a powerful church, a unified church, and a church that is not distracted by other things, but is fully on board with God's mission. So, let's go back to 1 Timothy 2. We get a glimpse at why Paul then is saying, hey, this is first of all of primary importance. And we see that it's important to him. We see that it's important to Jesus. We see that it was off. off Obviously important to the early church. And since God is the author of all of Scripture, it's obviously very clear 
that it's important to God. But there's another person that it's important to. For all the wrong reasons, and that's our enemy. I've been a part of a lot of churches, a handful of churches, I should say, in my Christian life. No ministry of the church is more attacked and least attended than the prayer meeting. Almost without exception. I, thankfully, I've been able to taste a couple different places um, where prayer was really at the heart. I mean, the people were a praying people. And man, you talk about the presence and the power of God and mission being powered and life being transformed. It was awesome. I'm so grateful that I've tasted bits and pieces of that in my Christian life. But what I've found in the Bible Belt South specifically is that it's a difficult ministry to get people to pray, to get people to persevere in prayer. And I mean really lay hold of it. I'm not talking about like my Aunt Ruth, her cat broke her toe kind of prayer. Like pray for a cat. I mean, but that's not heaven-shaking, heart-gripping, mission-empowering prayer. I'm talking about pleading for revival, interceding for souls, praying and longing for personal renewal and an outpouring of the Spirit. God gives us His promise and His Word that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. And so the enemy seeks to attack prayer. And so I hope as the text is coming and you see the Scriptures today that it's just beginning to bring that renewal of mind and that revival of our hearts. we got to give ourselves to this. Now, let's talk application for just a second. In God's providence, we've been dialoguing about what prayer would look like and we've been talking about how do we advance the cause of prayer in our midst. And in, in His sovereignty, He brings us here to this passage today. And so it's a perfect opportunity to announce um, a, new, a new ministry opportunity that's, that's happening. Now, keep in mind, this isn't like a box. That if you check, if you come to this meeting, check, got my prayer thing done. All right, there's numerous ways to apply this ministry, uh, a ministry of prayer. One is that um, we have people in the back after the service. Man, if you have a special need, this is a great time for personal request. Go back there and pray. Let these people pray for you. You don't have to have something catastrophically wrong. If you do, that, that's a great time to pray. But also, you might just go back there and say, man, I just want to love God more. Will you pray for me? And you don't have to be on a team to pray for one another. Pray for one another here. Or when we start the service in prayer, give that amen in your heart. Pray with each other. But if opportunity I invite you to please come um, on Sunday mornings, starting next week, uh, 9.30 to 10.15. There's a room right here behind this sanctuary. We're going to be in there praying for God to move during this service and in our church. This is the time where people's lives can be changed. This is the time where people can be saved. This is the time where people can be set free. This is the time where we get to pause as a community of believers and just worship God and be refreshed and changed by Him. And so more and more and more, we want His power to be poured out here. So come, please, and join us. We'll be back here at 9.30. We'll get done by 10.15. And it'll be one way that we can intercede for our congregation. Now, 
We're going to pick up the pace. Verse 2. I'm going to come back to the for all people because he says it numerous times in this passage. But verse 2. Paul's mentioning many groups when he says for all people at the end of verse 1. Verse 2 lets us know one of those specific groups he wants us to pray for. He says, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, it's clear that, that, that God is instructing us to pray for our rulers. Now, let's remember the context. At this time, it's quite possible, it's, prob- it's likely, there's not a single Christian ruler in the world at this time. So this isn't pray for them because you like them and you agree with them, right? This is pray for rulers and leaders. Even think about who's the emperor at this time. It's Nero. He's going to come to have a reputation of literally killing, slaughtering Christians and sanctioning it on a governmental level. And Paul's saying, hey, we got to lift these guys up who are kings and all who are in high positions. And he gives us a glimpse into what good government looks like. It leads to a peaceful and quiet life where godliness can abound and that there can be a holiness in every aspect of life. This prayer that's being offered, verse 3, it says this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So as God calls us to prayer for all people, He makes it clear. It's pleasing to me when you pray. It's an aroma to me. Come to me and pray. All right. God's call to prayer for all people. This next section, God's heart for all people. Says it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. And then verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. This verse gives us a glimpse into God's heart. I know that as I've begun my prayer journey, both a fruit of prayer and also a motivation for more prayer has been the heart of God. I heard this analogy one time, and I think it's a beautiful one to highlight this aspect of prayer, but it's almost like we're out in the ocean of the world and the waves are against us and the ocean wants to tell us what to think, what to believe, what's reality. And we're in a boat and we have a rope. And we look and we see the steadiness of the shore. And so when we're within that boat, we start swinging our rope and we throw it over to the shore and catch hold of a ledge. And by prayer, we start pulling ourselves closer and closer and closer to the mind and the heart of God. As I, as I go to my prayer closet, and as many others will testify, when we seek the Lord in prayer, more of His purposes gets put in us. We lose sight of these little preoccupations that we're fascinated with, and we get on board with His global mission and His purposes in the world. And so it's a fruit, but then it also motivates us to pray more. Because the more we taste of God, the more we want to see Him made known. And so I believe that that's what it's getting at here. It says about the heart of God in verse 4, it says, He desires all people to be saved. When I think about the heart of the Father, I think about the lovesick dad in Luke 15. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? The boy said, Dad, I want nothing to do with you. I'm going to live my life. 
and he rolls out and goes and just gets wasted on anything and everything. I ran away once in high school, and now being a dad, I can only imagine how my mom felt in that hour. Standing at the window, having no idea where your kid is, and all you want is for them to come back home and to know they're all right. And this is the picture we get in Luke 15. It's this lovesick dad who waits every day at the path, wondering when is his boy going to come home. And then one day he lifts up his head and off in the horizon he sees someone coming over the hill. And in the story, you've read it, could it be? And once he realizes that it's his son, he does a very, very undignified thing. He becomes, instead of a dignified man, he becomes an undignified father full of love. And he takes off running. And he picks up his, his clothes so that he doesn't trip on him. And he just takes off running after his son. And the son gets all these apologies ready. Oh, but I did it. Did, did. And he says, hold on. You're forgiven. Take this robe. Take this ring. We're going to have a party. Because my son was lost and now he's saved. This is God's heart for the lost. This is God's heart for the people around us. we got to get on board with that more and more and more and embrace it in prayer. One other quick thing to note about the text. He says he desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We've heard that phrase over and over and over again, right? All people. Let's pause there for a sec. Who is it that's hard for you to love? Who is it that it's hard for you? It can be a person. It can be a group. I hope at this point in Columbia, South Carolina, that, that we're, as the church, we're, we're, we're moving past racism. But we know it's still so prevalent in our culture. we got to repent of stuff like that. But even let's go deeper. What? What do you see happening in the New Testament that maybe wouldn't happen here if a prostitute was here today, for example? Would she find us more like Jesus or would she find us more like the Pharisees? Who, who is it that intimidates you? When you see a gangster, or I have a friend, a um, wonderful guy, his name is Dan, radically saved. He was, good gracious, anything you can think of, he was in it. And... Uh, this dude is tatted up. I'm not talking about like, oh, he's got like a sleeve of some cool tribal art. I mean, this dude is tatted up. He has a bullet on his forehead. He has devils that have now been covered up that were tattooed on his neck. I mean, this dude is covered. And he says to me, even this day, that when he goes into churches, he feels overwhelmingly self-conscious about his physical appearance. If, if Dan came in here, pre-Christ Dan, would I love him? Would I gravitate towards him? I met another guy. Last time my wife is from Switzerland, and I sat down with a guy in Switzerland from the country of Colombia, and I'm sitting there with a man, looks like any man in here, and he said, do you want to see a picture of me before I came to know Christ? I wish I should have texted him and said, hey, can you send me that picture? I said, sure. I knew a little bit of his story so um, that he came out of some different stuff. But he turns around, and I'm dead serious. It was a picture that if you would have told me it was not a woman, I would not have believed you. He says, this is me. 
That's me before I came to know Jesus. And I looked at him and I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, I was a transvestite. This is, this is how I live my life. And I'm wondering in my mind, like if I met him before he knew Christ, would I have been the one to love him and share? It's real. And God loves those people. Love sick father. So there's a God's call to prayer for all people and there's his heart for all people. And the most clear display of his heart for all people is his finally provision for all people in verse 5 through 7. And this is the good news of Jesus. It doesn't get more glorious than this. Verse 5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, we have some really big statements here that we need to think about and that fly in the face of course, culture today. First phrase in verse 5, it says, for there is one God. You know, Christianity is abundantly clear on this. There is one God. We don't buy into the whims of the culture to say there's multiple gods or multiple paths. The Bible is inexplicably clear that there is one God. Even Deuteronomy 6, 4 states the exact same. For the Lord our God is one. And so the decision to follow Christ is the decision to commit yourself to one God. And then it says, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now think about this for a second. There's, there's reasons that this claim could be made. This is not just do you believe it or not. And he gives them to us. He says that Jesus is a mediator. What's a mediator? A mediator is a go-between. A mediator represents both parties. And he highlights something here very unique about Jesus. Because Jesus was God in the flesh. And so he says there's one mediator. The man, Christ Jesus. Now what is the problem? Before we talk about the solution, what's the problem? The problem is that there's a holy God who's perfect in all His ways. And then there's us. Now I've met a few people that try to contend. Yeah, I've never sinned. I've never done anything wrong really all that bad, and I always want to say, well, then can I just call your wife? Or can I just call your husband? Can I call your kids? Hey, is this, is this Tim's wife, you know? Hey, has he ever just gotten a little bit angry? You, does he conduct himself at all times, at all moments, with selfless love that just puts the needs of others before himself? 24-7, 365, okay, dude, you're not perfect, so sorry, that's, that's busted, right? So we have this holy God and these imperfect people, these sinful people, and how can the two come together? Well, Jesus being fully God represents the holiness of God. He's a unique mediator. And being born of the virgin, He doesn't have that disease that comes from Adam, that inerrant sin that's in all of us. But yet He becomes man. And so He is able to represent man as a mediator. And not only is He able to represent man as a mediator, He did it perfectly. This is the other disqualifying, disqualifying factor that so easily can be put on anybody other than Him. He was sinless. He was perfect. No one else can even claim that. Do you know how easily that's disproved if it's not true? 
And yet He lived the perfect life, the righteous one. And so Jesus as our mediator means that He represents us. Our per- His perfect life becomes ours. And He represents God in that He satisfies the holy and righteous requirement of God. He's unique in His death in that God didn't sweep the sins yours and mine under the rug and just forget about them, but He gives them the just penalty. He pours out His wrath on Jesus so that as we embrace Jesus by faith, we no longer know anything of the holy wrath of God, but His mercy and His grace and love from this lovesick Father is able to flow to us as His sons and His daughters. And so He's a unique mediator in that He's a man. He's a unique mediator in that He's fully God. And He's a unique mediator in that He is a ransom for us. That He pays the price for our sins and He buys us back. And He's a unique mediator in that He's resurrected from the dead. Someone might say to you, you think you know the only way to heaven. That's quite an arrogant statement. And my response is, no, it's because the answer doesn't reside in me. I've been wrong so many times about where I could find life. But praise the Lord that by His grace, I finally realized to stop listening to dead men where I could find life. There's only one who's conquered the grave and who's alive to never die again. And He's the man, Jesus Christ, resurrected for us. And so our hope isn't in our intellect or our wit. Our hope is in Him that we say, look, He's the only one to do it. If you want life, follow Him. Muhammad is dead. Stephen Hawking is dead. Whoever else the world tempts us to follow, if they're not dead now, they're soon to be. But Jesus is alive. And therefore, He is a unique mediator. When we get that this gospel is for all people, and that God's heart longs for all people, and that we, the church, are the hope on the earth because we alone carry this message, then we will give ourselves to this mission. The thing is, is that the mission is impossible without the power of God upon us. And so therefore, we devote ourselves to prayer to bring us in line with His heart and His mind. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I very simply ask that we would be a praying people. God, even as we close today, I pray that You would be worshipped. I pray that you would encounter us and wash over us with these glorious truths that that Jesus, you are the crucified one. You are the resurrected and reigning one. And you are the one who speaks a better word over our life. A word of forgiveness. A word of righteousness. And that God, your heart is longing for all the ends of the earth. Whether it be our neighbor or those in North Korea to know this truth. God, fill us with your spirit. Empower us for our week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.